now to get us into our brand new series, our associate pastor, Matt Belusin. Thank you, Pastor Roland. How many, of you are, how many of you are thankful for Pastor Roland? Well, once again, welcome to Every Nation Church, Las Vegas. My name is Matt, like P. Rose said. I am the associate pastor. And you have joined us for this Sunday by the will of God. Now, we're excited that you joined us today. And we are starting this brand new series called Emmanuel, which you may know means God with us. And in this series, we'll be revisiting the Christmas narrative and the birth of Christ. And when we get around Christmas, we think about nativity, we think about these individuals as characters sometimes. But one difference between a character in, say, a Santa Claus story or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and these people who we'll talk about is that these individuals actually lived. They actually existed. They were real people, and real people have real problems. And these people around the birth of Christ had real problems. And I have a feeling that we will be able to relate to these very real problems. And we'll also be able to relate to the eventual hope that each of these individuals found in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is available to everyone. And the hope that we have in him is available to everyone as well. Another thing that is available to everyone, at least here in Las Vegas, is Enchant Las Vegas. Has anyone here been to Enchant? If someone from Enchant is here listening, you can feel free to send a donation to Every Nation Church Las Vegas at everynationlasvegas.org slash giving. And if not, you know, I guess we'll help them out with the free advertising. So I, as an individual, I tend to be anti-hype, anti-noise. If people start to talk something up, I try to bring it back down. But I kept seeing Enchant on Instagram. And I kept hearing people talk about how amazing it is. And I, as an individual, I've shared this before around Christmas time, my favorite part of Christmas, aside from Jesus Christ, is Christmas lights. And Enchant is very enchanting because of how many Christmas lights there are. I think I saw last year when we were getting ready to go that there are literally millions of Christmas lights here at this ballpark. So we walk into this place and I feel like a child I feel like I'm walking in a winter wonderland. And my kids are having fun, but I'm like, no, you go at daddy's pace. Because I want to see everything. At least stop playing. Stop having fun. We have to go see that next. So I'm extremely excited, and I'm just blown away walking around in this place filled with light. But it was really ironic, because the walk in to Enchant started in a parking lot that is dark and a little dirty, and filled with gravel. So the walk into this very enchanted experience is marked by a stark contrast from darkness to light. And I think often we can find ourselves in a similar journey, in a dark place, even if it's Christmas time. We can find ourselves in a dark place called doubt. And this is a dark place filled with dirt and gravel. And God actually sees us as we stand there in our doubt. And he calls us forward into the light. And that's what we want to learn how today. How do we walk out of doubt? We're going to talk about how to do that after we pray. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that you, Jesus, came. You left heaven. You were born of a virgin. You took on flesh, that which you created. You lived the life that we were meant to live. And you showed us. The way. So I, sh I pray, my God, that you would show us the way today. 
Teach us how to walk out of the doubt that any of us may be experiencing at any level and to encounter you and to stand in a place where we are sure of the goodness of God. I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start reviewing the Christmas narrative today and the birth of Christ, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to meet a man named Zechariah. Uh, we're going to read about Zechariah beginning in verse 5. Here's what the Bible tells us about him, verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So here is Zechariah, and this scripture is portraying him as a good, godly man. And I think all of us as people try our best to be good people, right? We don't lie, steal, or cheat. We try to be generous, especially around this time of year. Because when you walk into Walmart, you walk into Target, you walk into some store, there's a guy outside and he's ringing a bell and he's got a red can next to him. So we try to find a dollar bill to put in the little Salvation Army bucket, right? We want to be good. And for many of us, this idea of goodness is drilled into us from a very young age by Santa Claus. Uh, my daughter Asher was having a meltdown at breakfast one day. So I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm going to sing. And I start singing, oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming. Thank you for your participation. I greatly appreciate that. And I kept going, and I got to the part that says, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. And we try to be good for goodness sake. They love the song, by the way. I got to that part of the song, and I'm like, dude, this is totally a threat. Man, Santa Claw, right? This guy's got to claw our brains out or something. So we are taught to be good, and Zechariah wants to be good. And for a first century Jew, like was the case for Jews before and after, his standard of goodness was imparted to him by the Mosaic law. And by the standard of the Mosaic law, Zechariah wasn't just good, he was great. He was role model. He was a role model. He was a paragon of goodness in this culture because he was a priest. So he does all the law, and he leads people in worship. He teaches people how to pray. He's showing them how to do the ritual and all these great things. And instead of being a wicked priest who did good things and religious things in public and went and did bad things in private, he actually did all the good things in private even more. Zechariah is a man who practiced what he preached. Wouldn't the world be a better place if there were more people like Zechariah and Elizabeth? How many of you want to step up and be someone like Zechariah and Elizabeth? So these are awesome people. And in spite of their extreme awesomeness, Zechariah experienced disappointment. Someone this good, great, amazing, awesome experienced disappointment like any other person. And if we keep reading in the very next verse, we will see the reason for his disappointment. This is verse 7, chapter 1. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So imagine yourself in Zechariah's shoes for a moment. You have spent your entire life in your career praying for other people. You've taught them to pray. You've seen prayers answered. And in the whole time, you and your wife have prayed, and God did not answer your prayer. 
And to this point in their old age, it looked like God would not answer their prayer. And so Zechariah, the awesome, great, good man, experienced disappointment. And many of us experience disappointment too. In fact, all of us experience disappointment too. Some people experience disappointment like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there are so many other kinds of disappointment too. Disappointment can happen to us professionally. It can happen to us in school. It can happen to us in our homes or with our family members. It can happen to us in our health, in our finances. Maybe we're disappointed because we're waiting for God to do something that we think is God's will. And we pray for it and wait for it and do all the right things. And yet it seems like it hasn't happened yet. That's disappointing. And disappointment exists in a range. Sometimes it's easy to get over our disappointment pretty quickly. Right now, my family, because I have young children, we are into the Trolls movie franchise. And I am disappointed that we can't just buy it and watch it at home. We have to go into the theater. We can't buy it, I think, until February. I'm disappointed. But I'm not that disappointed by that. Some disappointment we get over pretty quickly. Sometimes you go up to your favorite restaurant. They say, hey, we are sold out of the item you're looking for. You go to the store at Christmas time, like, we're out of Christmas lights. We're out of hot chocolate. We're out of candy canes. Okay, that sucks. Big deal. I'm over it. But there are other kinds of disappointment that we carry with us wherever we go. And we carry it with us day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And that is the kind of disappointment that Zechariah experienced. So he is serving God, living as a priest, carrying this disappointment, when suddenly, one day, something amazing happens. And we're going to read about that in Luke chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. Here's what they say. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be, a great, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. So here we are in the middle of the story, and Zechariah has reached this climactic moment, and a lot is building up to this moment that maybe we don't understand here in the year 2023. But in the first century, there were thousands of priests at this point, so they took turns to serve on duty. They had divisions, and Zechariah goes in with his division when it's their turn. And then, in order to be fair to everyone, 
the three most important and desirable jobs at the temple were determined by lot. It was essentially a lottery system. And those three jobs were first, the first person who gets chosen by lot, he would go in and cleanse the altar and prepare the fire for the new day. The second person who was chosen by lot sacrifices the animals and sprinkles their blood on the altar. Weird, but still a job, still what people want to do. And then, the third thing that is chosen by lot is the job that everyone wants to do. And it is to take the censer and the incense and go to the altar and present it as a symbol of the prayers of people to God. That is what everyone wanted to do. And that is what Zechariah was chosen for this day. And even if Zechariah had been a priest all his life, this isn't something he would have done often. This was a rare and special occasion. So he goes in and stands in the temple on this very special occasion, offering the incense before God. I don't know what he did. It's kind of, imagine like a ribbon dance with a smoke trailing, right? Like, God. And he's just spelling things out. And as he's worshiping God and offering this incense to God, an angel appears. Standing right there, he sees it with his own two eyes. And then the reaction from this good, godly man who's standing in the temple, staring at an angel, the reaction from the deepest part of his soul is doubt. Zechariah doubted God. But why? How could he doubt God in this situation? Against all odds, he's chosen to present the incense. He's staring at an angel with his own two eyes. People are like, God, show me a sign. This is the sign, dude. You're looking at it. This is not just a sign. This is the guy in heaven who makes the signs. And his response is doubt. And as I sat here and I read this text in Luke 1, I, I, I was confused. Like, how is it possible to doubt? I, I understand doubt. I understand doubting God. How do you doubt God in this situation? And I think the reason why Zechariah, while staring at an angel, is because he was broken by the long years of disappointment. Year after year, presenting his request to God and it seemed like he was unheard made Zechariah doubt God to the point at which doubt became the default position of his heart and he was so filled with doubt at least in this one area of his life that even seeing an angel was not enough to make him believe and many of us have doubts that are similar to Zacharias. If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you're an unbeliever of some level, then it's easy to understand that, hey, maybe you have some doubts. Maybe you doubt God too. And maybe for you, you doubt the, how realistic it is that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and then died and rose again three days later. Maybe you have doubts because you have some other background in religion, or you have questions about science, or maybe you just have doubt because you see the pain and injustice in the world, or maybe you see pain and injustice in your own life, and it's hard to reconcile the things that you see with a God who sees. 
But this kind of doubt, it's not unique to unbelievers. Believers can doubt God too. And maybe you believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe you believe that God loves you. Maybe you believe that God loves the world. Maybe you believe that God is good. And all the time. To everyone except you. Maybe the difficulty of your personal situation makes it feel like God is good to everyone else except you. And I'm not just coming up with this out of nowhere. I'm saying it because I felt that way. A lot of you know the story, but um, my dad is in jail, and my dad was also a pastor. He was the first person to start an every nation church in Las Vegas. And the church was doing really well. And some of the people in this room came to know God in that season. But as the church grew and as stress accumulated and as tragedy struck, instead of doing the things that we'll stand on stage and preach about, like bringing your heart to God and sharing your life at a life group and talking about it and praying about it and processing it, my dad allowed his pain to become a secret life of compromise. And that secret life of compromise became a secret life of sin. And his secret life of sin became cyclical. And it was spinning around in a circle. And it was almost like a drill, digging a hole deep down into the earth. And that's a hole that he put himself in. And in a desperate attempt to dig himself out of the hole and pay off some kind of debt, he robbed a casino and got caught. So right now, dear old dad is in prison at the Three Lakes Conservation Camp outside of Las Vegas, serving his sentence. But the aftermath of this, the aftermath in our family and in the church, which closed down, and that's when Pastor Roland and Vilma rose up and started Every Nation Church Las Vegas. The aftermath of that was painful, and it lasted a long time. And in the aftermath, as I prayed and eventually started preaching again and started processing with other people, I doubted God's goodness for me. And I wondered if it was even possible for me to stay in ministry because I thought my dad stained the last name he gave me for the rest of my life. So any of us can come to a place where we doubt God in some way shape or form but what we need to realize if we are in this place of doubt is that this doubt doesn't help us and as a matter of fact doubt can hurt us and we'll see this as we continue on in our passage let's read verses 19 to 22 the angel said to him i am gabriel i stand in the presence of god and i have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long at the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. So I don't think anyone here has ever seen Gabriel the angel before and therefore stricken with silence as a result of unbelief. However, doubt can have consequences on us too. Because we try to use doubt like it's some kind of shelter. Like a makeshift shelter that someone puts up in order to shield themselves from the rain. And while the shelter might do a 
decent job of holding back some of that rain, the rain is still outside. It's still right there. It just stops your ability to feel some of it. And when we create this shelter of doubt, we use it as a shield to keep disappointment and pain out. We use it to keep disappointment and pain away from us. And it numbs us to this thing, these things. Doubt works to an extent to numb the pain of disappointment. However, it doesn't make it go away. And one of the problems with creating a shelter of doubt for ourselves and deciding to live in it is that the disappointment isn't the only thing that doubt keeps away from us. Doubt also keeps hope away from us. If we choose to live in this shelter of doubt, we also choose that we will not experience hope. Doubt and hope struggle to coexist. And the deeper we go into doubt, the less hopeful we become. Another one, another one of the things that doubt does is it keeps the goodness of God and the promises of God away from us. Doubt does not negate the promises of God, but it does negate our ability to experience the promises of God. And as we sit here in the shelter of doubt, it isolates us from other people. Think about the implications of Zechariah being unable to speak. Well, he had to come out of the temple and place charades, and he couldn't talk to anyone. And in a similar way, when we are living in doubt, it's rare that we articulate and express our deep questions and hurt and pain to people. And because we're not sharing what's actually on our hearts, our connection becomes inauthentic. And we are isolated. And like Zechariah, we can become trapped in our own doubt. And God doesn't want us to stay there. So if you're like me, as I study this passage, you know John the Baptist was born. So I thought, okay, we don't want to be in doubt, but there must be something Zechariah did. Something big to show, God, I believe now. Let me express my belief. So I read the chapter looking for this thing that Zechariah did. But I didn't see it. And then I read the chapter again, looking for something. Come on, Zechariah, show us how to get out, to walk out of doubt. I didn't see it again. And that's when I realized maybe he didn't do something massive or drastic in order to leave that place of doubt, and maybe we don't need to either. If we want to walk out of doubt, we can take one step of faith at a time. I think that is what Zechariah did. And we can start to see it in this next passage here. Verses 23 and 24, it says this, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. So Zechariah comes out of the temple with hundreds of people watching. He's playing charades with people. They have no idea what's going on. He goes home and plays charades with his wife. He asks for a tablet and he starts writing things out to her. And then somewhere along the way, his wife Elizabeth becomes pregnant. How awkward was that? What on earth did Zechariah write on that tablet? Hey, girl. Wink face. Or he was a priest. He knew the Old Testament. Maybe he's writing out the verses of Song of Solomon, one scripture at a time. Hey, girl. <clears throat> Your hair is like a flock of goats. 
leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your bosom is like the hill country of Ephraim. I don't know how, but he did, but they did. And it proved that he was taking one step of faith at a time. And here he is, at least nine or ten months later, probably a year or more, and his son John the Baptist is born, and he still can't speak. But his wife Elizabeth knows exactly what the angel said to name him. How does she know? Zechariah told her somehow. For about a year, in silence, Zechariah is taking one step of faith at a time until he eventually stood in a place of being sure of the goodness of God. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, or if you're wanting to know more about God, more about Christianity, that's something you can do. There is a man named Lee Strobel. I was going to start talking about him at the last uh, point. But anyway, Lee Strobel was a reporter, an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Very big deal, really big newspaper, and he had been skeptical all his life. He wrote once that as a kid, he'd be the type to walk into Baskin and Robbins, which is known for having 31 flavors of ice cream. And instead of trying to pick what flavor of ice cream he wanted, like a normal kid, he would stand there and count all the different flavors of ice cream to make sure that they were actually 31. So this is a skeptical individual. And one day, his wife Leslie was invited to church because her friend had been engaging her with the gospel of Jesus Christ, engaging her with an invitation to church. That's what we talk about in the Every Nation family. You engage individuals, culture, family, communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Leslie had been engaged with the gospel. She goes to church. She gets saved. She decides to follow Jesus. And Lee decides that he is going to apply his skills as, as an investigative reporter to investigate Jesus Christ and Christianity. And he realized very quickly that Christianity is unique and that it places all of its validity and authority on one historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so he began to research how realistic it was to conclude that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And as he did this, he realized that Christianity was founded essentially and spread by eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen this event. Hundreds of them. And these eyewitnesses were willing to die for their testimony. And then he thought, who dies for a lie of their own making? Much less dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of them. And because these were historical events, the New Testament would have been available for eyewitnesses written within a generation of the resurrection of Christ from the dead to go out and disprove other people who weren't Christians to say, hey, I see these documents. Yeah, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do that. He wasn't there. And yet, in spite of this ability, Christianity grew and thrived in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove it. And then Lee Strobel went out and read the works of people like Peter Stoner who went and calculated how difficult it would be for a single person to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that pointed of years before the Messiah's birth. And one of the conclusions of this research was that the possibility of Jesus fulfilling 
48 of these prophecies, which he did, more actually, was equal to the likelihood of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's a 1 with 157 zeros behind it. That's a lot of zeros. If you want to think of something that has a greater chance of succeeding, then try to pick a single predetermined atom in the known universe at random. And that would be easier than a single person fulfilling all the prophecies that Jesus Christ did. And so Lee Strobel took step after step after step as he took one step in faith at a time. He went to church, he went to life groups, and eventually he wrote that he came to a place where he had to make a decision. And to him, he said it was like putting one jigsaw piece together at a time in a puzzle. So here's what he wrote in 1993. He said, so after I had put the last piece of my mental jigsaw puzzle in place, I figuratively stepped back to see the picture I had been systematically piecing together in my mind for almost two years. It was a portrait of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like the former skeptic Thomas, I responded by declaring, my Lord and my God. That was the result of Lee Strobel taking one step of faith at a time. And if you're a believer here this morning, you can take one step of faith at a time too. You can start to pray again. And maybe you already pray, but pray about the things that you stopped praying about. Pray for God to move. Ask God to lead you. Pray with somebody. Partner up with somebody and pray with them. Pray together. Go read the word about it again. Join a life group so that you're not walking and chasing God alone, but that you have the experience and support and input from other people around you. Choose transparency in life group. And if you need to or if you want to, go see a counselor, preferably a Christian counselor who can apply their professional skills and the word of God at the same time. If you want to take a step of faith, read a book about the area in which you'd like to take a step of faith. And if you need help picking one, me or Pastor Roland or someone else in this church, we can help you pick one. And I'm not coming up with these steps of faith out of thin air because these are the steps of faith that I took after everything happened with my dad. I did all of these things one step of faith at a time. One more prayer. One more time reading the word. It's time to pick up a new book. It's time to drive out and see my counselor again. And eventually... As I walked, I left that dark place of doubt and stood in a place where I was sure of God's goodness again. We can be sure of God's goodness. Somebody from the worship team can come and start to play. But here is where we will wrap up in Luke chapter 1. Let's read verses 57 to 65. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, 
His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. So somewhere along the way, in the nine months of which he silently took one step of faith at a time, Zechariah left the shelter of doubt that he was trapped in and walked by the grace of God into a place filled with light where he was sure of the goodness of God. And finally, when his mouth was opened again, it revealed everything that was in him, the confidence, the faith, the assurance, the hope. From out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And from out of the abundance of hope in his heart, Zechariah spoke, praising God because he was sure of God's goodness. Lee Strobel today, he's sure of the goodness of God. He went from being an atheist to a very prolific evangelist and apologist. He's wrote plenty of books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. And in all the books he wrote, one of my favorite quotes from Lee Strobel is this, only in a world where faith is difficult can faith exist. And he learned that for himself, and he's living it out himself. I have walked by the grace of God into a place where I'm standing sure of God's goodness. And not only am I not worried about having to leave ministry because of what my father did anymore, God put bigger dreams on my heart. And I'm confident that there's going to be a day where God is going to call us to lead a church too. Pastor Roland and I share a dream that there are going to be multiple every nation churches in the Las Vegas Valley all over the place one day. And that's not anytime soon, but we take one step of faith at a time. And as we do, I am confident. Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God has begun a good work in every single person in this room. The fact that you're sitting here listening to me is proof of that. And I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We can be sure of God's goodness. So how do we walk out of this deep, dark, dirty, gravelly, desolate place of doubt? into a new place filled with light where we are confident of God's goodness. Take one step of faith at a time. Moment by moment, day by day. And I'm sure that we will be sure of God's goodness. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I thank you you're good even when the world is dark and even when times are hard you are good and I know that you want to show your goodness to everyone in this room so Holy Spirit I pray that you would speak to us and show us what the next step of faith looks like show us who we can take a step of faith with 
And as we take that next step of faith, I pray that you would reveal your goodness to us and your light and your life and your love one step at a time. If heads can be bowed and eyes closed across this place, if you're here and you feel like you're ready to become a Christian, you're ready to follow Jesus, to say out loud, hey, I believe and I'm ready to follow him. I'm ready to read the Bible and learn what God says to live, has to say about how to live, what it means to live with purpose. If that's you and you want to make that decision today, then can you raise your hand on the count of three? One, two, three. Anybody here? Anybody here? Praise God, I see you. Anybody else? You want to make that decision today? Praise God. If that's you, then I want to lead you in a prayer. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And we're just going to pray a prayer that does that. So repeat after me as the church repeats along with us. Say, Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to live for us. Jesus, I believe that you lived a perfect life, died in my place, on the cross and rose again three days later. I believe you are the Son of God. So live with me. Help me to live for you. Teach me to follow you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.